0: What's the time, what's the time, what's the time? It's time for the DogCast. Dennis, the menace. That's me! Y'all ready for this? No introduction or description to this podcast will do justice to the man I speak to today. All that I ask is for you to try and put yourselves in his shoes at the tender age of 11 and being told you've just lost your mother to suicide. Think about how you'd react and what your response would be to the event. Seamus Hennessy's response was to go on and win minor, under 21 and senior hurling All-Ireland Finals with his county, as well as becoming a massive advocate for suicide prevention and active public speaker in schools and various organisations. On the 13th of December, Seamus will embark on what is expected to be one of the toughest physical challenges he will ever experience by running the Great Antarctic Marathon. He will run the 43 kilometres in minus 30 degree temperatures, representing three suicide prevention charities in an attempt to prevent what happened to him ever happening to another person again. Episode 23 The Strength of Vulnerability. Mr. Seamus Hennessy, thank you so much for taking time out to speak to, to me and the Talk Guest today. You're more than welcome, I'm glad to do it. This uh, this man uh, has taken the, the road less travel. I, I speak about that road that I've taken from Belfast, but this man uh, has definitely taken the, the, the road less travel. Seamus, what we do at the start of the show is we ask uh, the person in front
1: of them just to kind of describe themselves in, in a couple of few sentences, a couple of few words. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I'm the only child, and from a small village called Clock Jordan in North Prairie, it's about... Uh, 15 sorry about 10 miles outside Nina your main town um uh, like yourself had a privileged opportunity to go to get a boarding school education in Cistercian College in Ross Grey and um, went over towards your homeland west and you I go away for college and um, the last then five or six years I've uh, put bread on the table based working in Dublin um, so that's kind of a very short synopsis of uh of all the major parts of my life um I played GA. played a bit of rugby while I was in school, still play at my local club in Tipperary, Killarone, McDonagh's, Um, yeah. James, I don't know if you'd describe it as summiting Machu Picchu, but a a
0: brainchild came to you, I don't want to ruin that brainchild, but can you give us a little bit of an insight of what was kind of going through your head at that time?
1: Yeah, so it's actually, we actually need to go back six or seven months prior to to, um, the Machu Picchu trip. In October of 2016, I was invited into Turles CBS to speak to students at the, during their school wellbeing week. Um, and on my way back to Dublin afterwards, like any of the kind of school visits I would do, um, i just reflect on, on the conversation I'd have had with the students, the story of mine that I'd share and what I think went well in the conversation, what I didn't think went so well. Um, areas that I would like to have mentioned that perhaps I didn't areas that I felt I'd like to have maybe emphasised more that I didn't but the overriding feeling coming out of this one was I didn't feel it added very much value to the students that were in the room and I said to myself on the way back to Dublin look, there's kind of three options now to resolve that one is to kind of just park that, forget about it continue on sharing the story as is second one was to kind of explain or change the story perhaps which wasn't an option because i have i only have my own life story there's no embellishing of it with you know anything other than the facts and then the last one was you know maybe what what was it i could do that would you know support my story further you know that i might be able to do to help um in the area of i suppose suicide awareness um and supporting suicide awareness charities and encouraging people to talk when they're struggling. So, a couple of weeks after that, I was heading off traveling for six or seven months. So it, it wasn't an immediate thing I needed to think about. But when I got to Machu Picchu, um, just the second last day, there's a long, there's a long walk for anyone that's done it. That you go along the railway tracks to a town called Aguas Calientes, mm-hmm. and you just have a long, you have a long stretch of walking to do in the afternoon. So you have plenty of time for thinking, um, and and just before I got this brainwave I thought I'd try and frighten the guy one of the guys walking me so I started jumping on a bridge up and down and my phone flew into the river. So that, <laughs> that was my iPhone gone. So that meant that meant there was no like there was no downloaded podcasts or no Or all your little notes taken. Yeah, no Anton or no Spotify to listen to so it was literally me and my thoughts for the next couple of hours. Nothing so, worse yeah, probably, you're right So, yeah something better Well, it depends, yeah Sometimes it can be a good thing um, So, yeah, kind of very quickly I just decided upon, you know what You can share your story And the other kind of concrete way I felt I'd be able to help suicide awareness in Ireland Suicide awareness charities Was to fundraise on their behalf mm-hmm. Because, you know, with the, with the gap that exists From, a, I suppose, a national government perspective To support... Um, mental health in this country. Just the, the charities fill in that gap, you know, and provide a wonderful service. So, but the more you can fundraise, the more it enables them to provide their service to the more people. Yeah. So I just felt, felt to myself, you know, let's just fundraise. Um, and immediately an automa- This was literally automatic when I thought fundraising. The next word that came in the head was suffer. I would. I felt, and I still feel that in order to feel kind of worthy of people's hard earned money. That I had to suffer for that, um, and that's just a bit of my nature, I suppose. You know, I I would be uncomfortable with people donating to me if they didn't feel as though God, he's he's really earning this. You know, he's really earning my my money because people's money is it's hard earned, you yeah. know. And there's a whole lot of things that they can be spending it on, whether it's themselves, their families, their requirements, and for them to decide to voluntarily donate it to what I was doing. I, had, I felt I had to air yeah. it But before we get into Any
0: of that um, I do want to start Start with a little game Called Association Which we play, play at the start For people who don't know The Seamus Hennessy These are just words Phrases Sentences I just want to For the things that are Going to come up In your subconscious Just the first thing Comes to your head And uh, to get a better, a better Idea of uh, the Seamus Hennessy Who stands Or sits before me Okay so Mental health
1: Vulnerability Pet hates People who keep Pressing the button On the Lewis It'll open <laughs> One press Hope Belief Charity Give
0: Machu Picchu Hardship School days Hardship Loyalty Everything Driving licence None (laughs) Generosity Important The Liam McCarthy Cup Needs to come back to the Prairie that's, uh, for any of our inter- international listeners That's uh, the, the All-Ireland Hurling Cup That you win at the end of the year It's unfortunately in Limerick at the moment um, Childhood hero
1: Homer Simpson Favourite book uh, Shantram
0: oh, That's fantastic Have you been to India?
1: Yeah, that's where I started that trip Brilliant Christmas Not a happy time for everybody Blame Nah, forget about it Drink of choice Guinness And
0: friendship My dog, Jess Shims, you said that uh, Christmas isn't a happy time for for everyone It obviously (laughs) brings up some really, really good feelings for some people But really bad feelings for for others Where do you stand with, with Christmas?
1: Um, well Christmas has always been kind of A little bit different for me I'm an only child um, You know obviously my mum's only around For the first 11 years of my life So the next kind of 8 or 9 Would have been just my dad and I And then since he got remarried It's my dad, Denise and I And our dog Jess So we see each other a lot Um you know, so Christmas kind of, for me, it's that, you know, that driving home for Christmas song. Yeah. And it's everybody associated, associated with coming back home to be a family again. Well, for me, any time I come home is kind of the same as Christmas time. So mm-hmm. I just, I find that it's a great time to meet other people. But in my own family, it, it feels relatively similar to most other weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it's, there's some genuine happiness around christmas absolutely um you know and there's some genuine feel-good stories and and for lots of people they're in good form at christmas but there's also sometimes a lot of pressure on people to be artificially happy to mm. be externally happy mm. and like you know to be putting a smile on and you know oh, i'm delighted to see you i'm delighted to see this person or that person and you know the, christmas might not be a good time for them they might have lost somebody around christmas time Um, they might be struggling themselves and yeah you know, I think it all, it you know it just gets masked in in being this university happy time that's the, the, the way you're speaking
0: resonates with me now and it also resonated with me back when I was in school. So I was two or three years uh, behind you, but you had this kind of public persona because not just were you captain of of junior cup senior cup teams, you were also scoring for ten and eleven in in in, in, in uh, hurling finals. It's it, it seems as though you always seem to be kind of that step ahead of everyone else, not just physically, but also mentally. Can, can we can we track back to 11 year old Seamus um, and the news being broke to him about what happened to his mother and, and what his response was? And also the, the, the service that were that, that were provided for you at the time that possibly helped you
1: and made you the man you are today. Yeah. So when I was 11, life went in the following order. I we lived um above our pub in Clock Jordan that we owned. It's about a five hundred meter walk to school. I go to school every morning, I come home every afternoon, um I'd get my bag, fling it into the corner of the room and I'd get out hurling or playing soccer or playing prim- primarily hurling where I where I'm from. When it would get dark early in the winter time Late in the summer time I'd come in, I'd get my homework done as quick as I could And I'd try and get down and work in the pub um, And do a bit of time working in the bar And then make sure that either my mum or my dad Read something to me before i go out to bed at night And that I'd eaten plenty to be, not to be hungry And like those, you know, it was very normal Very run-of-the-mill, mundane, um, joyful existence and then the 3rd of February, 2000, same thing. I went to school, uh, came home immediately from school and kind of just asked where's ma'am? And I wasn't asking because I wanted to see her. I was asking because I was wondering where food was. You know, so that's kind of a level of pretentiousness, I suppose. Um, But at 11, you're just concerned about the things that matter to you, really. So that, I don't know what happened then. I went out hurling. I would have came in. Then later on again, it's February time, so I suppose it's dark at... I don't know whatever half 5, 6ish I guess Or sometime around that um, And Once I got back in I would have done my homework I assume And then I was asking again Like oh where's ma'am Because you know most evenings She'd either be back Or be in the bar Or you know Looking after the pub was. So I was just curious at this stage Because that, that was the daily routine And dad told me Oh she's just gone to see She was gone to Nina to pick up stuff And she's gone to see your, ma- your auntie So her side of the family are from over kind of a place called Ballenderry, which is quite close to Loch Dark, which would yeah. be maybe twenty minutes away from where where we're where, where we're from in Clock Jordan. So I didn't think much more of that either. But then I do definitely remember when I was down in the pub there was a kind of real eeriness around the place. And um, it was just a bit it was a bit weird and I didn't really know why, but it's it's interesting to note that even you can remember a, a child can pick up things very very quickly they can pick up the subtleties of changes in the atmosphere in a room of people and uh, as the evening went on I definitely was you know I was starting to be worried and wondering what the hell's going on here and I can remember this it's strange but I can remember it and then sure dad had to tell me I suppose the news that every parent dreads telling their um telling their children at any stage in life really is that one of their parents has died but well, I suppose especially to tell to try and tell an 11 year old an only child at that as well that um that his mother has died by suicide which is you know it's, it's obviously incredibly traumatic devastating it's life changing and it's and I, I use those two words kind of separately rather than the this transformative way in which it's used often it's it changes your life fundamentally because well from now on you you, one of your parents is no longer going to be around you're never going to have the opportunity to speak with them again um your mother is gone so that matriarchal female influence on your life is now gone and you can't ever get it back or you can't ever get it back in the present or into the future you can try and think back maybe on stuff that took place and draw something from that but you can't ever create anything physically or in person with them again so, but of course at 11 like, like you're not, you're not, you're not equipped yeah. or you're not, you haven't <laughs> been provided bar, you have a, you've had exceptional an exceptional um, direction of parenting from your parents you're, you're probably not equipped to cope with news as life-changing as that news is so I mean what are you supposed to do how do you cope how do you get by when you know you now have to come to the realization that you're never going to talk to your mother again you're never going to hug her again you're never going to give out to her again you're never going to you know and things that you do or you might do as you grow older or I see other fellas doing with their parents because they don't even think twice None of that's going to happen She's not going to see you go to school You're not going to Any of the Achievements in your life She's not going to be a part of In person But none of that None of that occurs to you at the time Like that all This is with the benefit of 17, 18 years on You're like able to reflect And go You know There's none of that now Going to happen I mean you don't think that's time yeah, I think so it's a great thing Yeah well I mean That's experience And that's just what occurs As time passes But in the moment i'm like you know you you don't know what to do you don't know what to say and of course very quickly then as usually is the case in rural communities the whole community comes around gets around you The, the word gets out about what happened the devastation that it's about to leave and especially as it was for us in that we're a small village we owned the two main pubs in the village at the time a lot of people would have you know would have frequented our pub and would therefore have known Josie my mum and would have known her well and and known her far better than i in fact because they would have had years more experience with her than i would have had so you're there and you know the community starts to rally around people start to arrive your family on both sides start to arrive and everybody wants to take care of you everybody wants to see that you're okay and i remember it's it's very it's i don't know strange is the right word it's very something i don't know what the word is um a lot of people would have like put their arm around you and said look it's going to be okay it's going to be okay and i i can remember this as true as i'm sitting here beside you that i would not remember thinking in my head it's not going to be okay like it's not because i can't talk to her again i can't ever we can't ever do anything now together physically again it would be different if like you know she had a bad flu and someone said to you she'll be okay obviously like she's going to recover from the flu after a few days and with the right medicine but no in this instance like that's not true like it's fundamentally not true that it's going to be okay because it's not going to be okay you know it's not going to you're not going to wake up out of a dream you're not going to flick like flick your fingers and it's back to how it was on sunday so i remember thinking that at the time i remember knowing that at the time and i don't i don't say that now from a place of anger like I just say it from a complete matter-of-fact perspective that, like, no, it's not going to be okay. Like, this is different. And then the only other kind of real memory I've got of the whole few days that, you know, the the prior to, during, and after the funeral was, and we, got, we got a couple of minutes in the funeral home, and I remember my dad and I had this minute or two where we were just up at the at her coffin when it was open so we could look at her and um i remember saying I remember putting my arm around him and saying look mam's going a long holiday but we'll see her again someday and i know it sounds a little bit contradictory to what i just said but that's the way in which i reasoned that right she's gone away for a long long time a long holiday and this is an 11 year old thinking you know you're thinking a bit like you're just trying to trying to uh, rationalize yeah. things and comprehend it. So I was thinking, long holiday and we'll see her again someday. Which maybe at eleven and being in a Catholic primary school, and that you're believing that like you know eventually everybody meets again. And as time goes on, I don't know whether you necessarily believe that as much, but that's everybody's individual choice. But that's kind of, I remember saying that to dad, and I think we both took a huge amount from that. I'd say I took a lot because I was able to reason it and comprehend, to some degree, try and just give myself a way to think about what was a, a thinking or a mental model to use to get through this. And for him, he probably, may I, I don't know, maybe he thought, God, that's wonderful insight for... a a child to have in 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 a moment like this in a moment as traumatic as this is and they're kind of the two standout memories that whole this won't be okay and this concept of a long holiday but we'll meet again and like I went back to school the following day like you know I just I suppose the next day yeah the next day yeah yeah the next day um I mean I was in. I'm. I'm was was it a
0: shock Did you go to the, was, You know the, the five stages That they say Yeah I don't know um, did, did, Was there a stage Two, three weeks Maybe even months Or even, even a year after yeah. That it just kind of Hit you like a ton of bricks
1: I can't remember Actually Well we'll get there I suppose there, there might be an episode That maybe that's what it was But I went back to school Yeah as I said I'm an only child And I suppose I just kind of got back to normality or relative normality or you know or just getting back into kind of your standard routine maybe more than normality and about six months later then um my dad said to me one evening listen we're going over to a school here um which for a couple of hours and like I kicked up a right ruckus like so I was (laughs) like hang on a minute like I'm I'm in school all day I'm not going again in the evening and you know he kind of explained well it's not exactly school But as you do anyway, I went because parents decide these things and you do what you're told. So I went with him. And as it turned out, we went to the Berserkean Community College, which would be the secondary school kind of nearest where I live at home. And there was 8 or 10 or 12 other children like around my age, give or take a couple of years. And um, it was this... (laughs) as I reflect on it now it's kind of like you know when you hear about stories in the 70s and 80s in the dance halls in Ireland like yeah, where yeah, yeah. the one guys side are on yeah, one side and yeah, the yeah. girls are on the other side and like never the two shall meet but um, we were kind of all this sheepish bunch of young lads who didn't really know each other and were kind of like all trying to feel each other out a bit on this first night but as it turns out it was a child counselling programme um, facilitated by Rainbows Ireland so for 12 weeks 6 weeks a break another 6 we went over for a couple of hours each Tuesday, a programme facilitated by um, by a nun, Sister Nora as her name, who's still in the school today actually. She took us through the 12-week programme, so we'd have spent a bit of time like doing arts and crafts, sports, etc. And then for a half an hour or so each night, we had a workbook that we worked our way through as the, as the programme went on each week through the 12 weeks. And that was a very gentle... Safe uh, Introduction to talking And again Much like I'm explaining You know my thoughts Tonight as we sit here about what it was Around the time of what happened I'm also reflecting right now On what that program was Because at the time Like I certainly didn't as a 10 Or as a 12 year old like engage in a whole Pile of self reflection you know At that age so I mean that comes maybe A little bit later in life when you've a few more formative experiences that mean you can join the dots a bit on things <laughs> but we this is what we were doing we were doing we were going through our programme and like Sister Nora would very gently bring out what you're thinking how you're feeling what's going on inside so for example she would have said to me so if you went to school today and somebody teased you in school and you would have told mum about it what will you do now who will you tell now and I'd be like well I'll keep it a secret and tell nobody or I might tell my dad or I might tell the teacher and the next thing would be okay so if you keep that to yourself then what will happen or if you tell dad what will happen or on and on and so forth you know or like even, even more basic things again, she'd be like, right, what's life like now with dad's cooking for dinner rather than mom's cooking? And be like, well, it's shit like she's not like to cook. <laughs> or like I miss shepherd's pie or whatever, you yeah. know. But, but ultimately, whilst the questions sound trivial, what they're actually doing is in a very safe, gentle way, they're starting to get you to talk about how life is now in the aftermath of what happened. But it's been done in a very safe manner it's also been done in a manner that kind of says to you well if there are things I don't want to tell my dad or I don't you know I can't tell my dad I can tell this group you know and it's like there's always things that there are always things that some of us feel less or more comfortable sharing with Somebody, yeah, so you know, and that's just the way life is. So I'm sure it is for you. Perhaps there are things you're more comfortable to share with your mum, then there are things you're more comfortable to share with your dad, absolutely. Then there's more things you're comfortable to share with Philip, and on and on and so forth. And then there are things you wouldn't go near them with, but you might talk to X 100%. about. And this is this is kind of the same thing again, reflecting on it. Well, I know that Sister Nora, for example, does never get angry, you know. Like, or I know that she doesn't ever tell me that's wrong because they don't do that. They never tell you what's right, what's wrong. It's always just gently about helping you to arrive at an answer or at least even just to get it out in the open. So it's a safe place. Yeah, it's incredibly safe. And like it was the same for the other children who were there. That program then came and went. Um, and this brings me on to... Your question, which is a very, very, very interesting question that I haven't really considered—a ton of bricks scenario. So the following year, then I went to Colossian Arena in Waterford for a year schooling, um, to improve my Irish. And about four months ago, no, it's probably six months ago now. My dad and I were um, we were at an event. I was speaking at a community event locally in tipperary and we're on the way home in the car, and he said to me, "Hey, I have something I need to talk to you about," and I was shitting it. 'Cause I thought, Jesus, what am I after doing here now? Like And he said, You know that point you made about lasting three weeks in Ring? I was like, Yeah He says, You lasted three days And I was like, What? He says, Yeah, three days. So I brought you down on Tuesday and I'd come and get you on Saturday. So I went to Ring on a Tuesday as part of a year in in Ring to improve my Irish. And I was so homesick, so unable to cope that by Saturday, he had to come and bring me back home. I was right at this time, like there were very few phones, even pay phones. This would have been 2001 yeah, September 01. So there was very, very little by way of pay phones or even any communication, communication. aside from writing letters. So I would have spent what I thought were weeks, which in actual fact were days, writing these letters and I'd have to keep restarting them because I keep crying on the page because I was just. Bloody I just wasn't, I just, yeah, and it blocked the page and it would be illegible So I'd have to start again And Dad just had to come and get me So I was just completely emotionally incapable of being away from home Because it couldn't really have been a physical thing Because like, there was a couple of hundred, I'd say, at least. Well, there was a lot anyway, of other students who were away And like they were capable of being away physically mm-hmm. it was, And it wasn't a physical thing, I thought it was that I was missing home I was missing my dad but it wasn't physical it was an emotional thing you know that I was not just not ready to be away not ready to be separated for that long not to be able to talk to him at night not to be able to just see him I'd say so it was just a it was purely an emotional thing so that's what I mean about you get this absolute devastation of what happened you start to kind of i suppose looking back and you start to come up a bit on the wave the wave is high in the water as you're going through the counseling period because you're starting to talk things out then you go to ring and it's boom right back to the bottom you're just like emotionally all over the place and unable to cope and we talked a lot about that then over that winter and into the new year about you know what is it why is it what are you worried about what are you frightened of and you know i'd be there in my head thinking Well, what if you die I can't do anything about it you know if, if I'm away in this school and you're miles and miles away at home I can't do anything about it and what am I going to do then and like all these things that you know that are natural for a child with, with two parents to think but especially for a child with you know a single parent now to be thinking so we talk our way through all of this and we just get it out I suppose I kind of get out of me what my worries and my fears are that might occur and then the following year, the following September, you go to Ross Grey. And away you go, you know. But you must have been in a,
0: a stable mindset at that stage to be able to un- undertake Ross Grey. Because from my own personal experience, you're reminding me of how I reacted when I first went to Ross Grey. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I had Dan Smith down the phone to my mother saying this, this boy isn't fit for, for boarding school either. Doing laps of the Of the of the graveyard outside <laughs> and, and, and saying Oh this monk uh, Died And that monk died and, and then my two best friends Like yourself Were after Up and leaving as well And I had no friends And everything else And as traumatic as experience But For Like I had no idea I was a 13 12 13 year, years of age but I hadn't I I didn't lost a parent I had absolutely everything Every opportunity How were you able to deal with that Then going to Roscray After what had happened in Ring And also what had happened With
1: your mother Yeah well one part certainly that made it much easier was the distance, like it did. Like I was fifteen minutes from Clock Jordan where I live to Ross Grey. So that made it far easier in that like if I if I was in bad if I was in bad shape or like for some first years art are they're just really struggling, like Dad could come and see me at half seven break. You know, for the 45 minutes and then back in for study again after that. He could come down and see me if needs be. Like, it'd be a big hit for your parents to come from the other side of Galway City to come down to Ross Gray, I mean but all the same James. I mean you know. it's it, it, it still yeah no but that's just one aspect that made it much easier was the fact that it was a, like it, it, the distance was short okay. I was still able to for example I was still able to play GEA with my local club and get out in the right, evenings for the games still. yeah because it was only a few minutes away like so that just made it a bit easier but I suppose the other aspect that made it a lot easier was that you know we had, we had talked our way through lots of stuff like you know I no longer felt he might die or or no like anybody unfortunately like life is you can could die at any stage there's no control over that in many ways but I didn't have this impending fear like that oh something's going to happen to him I can't do anything about it um it's a big worry you know I'm literally paralyzed because I can't do anything about that like you know there wasn't that that wasn't as stark or it didn't kind of prevent me from doing what I needed to do. I'll give you one example, though. Like, it wasn't all Rosie in the Garden. One day, like, you know, half days on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, and I try, I tried to phone Dad just to say hello to him. In first year now, is it? Uh, for, yeah, probably was first year, I'd say, yeah. Yeah, I'd say it was. And I tried to give him a ring and just to say hello or whatever, and he didn't pick up. So I rang back quite soon again afterwards, and he didn't pick up. And before first study at twenty to six, I'd phoned him twenty four times, and he hadn't picked up. He was playing golf. Like Wednesday afternoon is, you know, is where he his and local you golf. You obviously convinced yourself in your head. Yeah, I was just completely freaked. Like, but Wednesday afternoon is just the day he plays golf. He must have been, he must have maybe teed off at half twelve or one o'clock. Golf is four four and a half hours, and maybe he left the phone. At home Because at that stage There were still big bricks I know but that's the rationale You have in your head now What was the rationale When you were back 12, 13 years of age I was freaking out again Because like, I was like Why is he not picking up Why is he not picking up Why is he not picking up but Just give
0: us a bit of an insight Into it's your wrong. thought process I, I mean because I think it's important for Whatever about a 12 or 13 year old kid It, it even happens to myself You overgeneralize. It's black and white thinking Cognitive oh, yeah. distortions Like <laughs> I spoke about In a previous uh, podcast episode you, you lead yourself down a, a, a dirty road Into oblivion essentially
1: yeah, but I like you have to remember as well. I'm now two and a half years after losing my mother to suicide. So the thing about suicide, you've got to remember, is that, and especially if you're young, you know, because you're not, you're probably not quite as aware, or maybe somebody can can put on a facade or an exterior that, to you, looking at them, say everything is okay, because you know you're just younger, you haven't developed. ...the ability to know somebody inside out... ...so if you think about someone who loses... ...a parent to suicide when they're young... ...they're gone... ...like I went out to school that morning... ...I came in, like I said to you... ...I came in after school wondering where her is... ...because I wanted something to eat... I never, wondered, ...I never wondered what happened to her today... ...I got told... ...she's taken her life... ...so instantly then... if so, ...like a couple of years later... ...if you're looking at... ...if I'm looking at my dad... And he's not picking up the phone I'm not thinking Oh it's Wednesday He's playing golf He obviously doesn't have his phone I'm thinking Shit something's wrong Like I'm I'm at the I'm at the far end of the scale Where I'm wondering What the hell's going on here For a period When I was young Especially as an early teenager Like you said there Everything's black Or it's white It's They're here And everything's great Or if they're not picking up If they're not there They're gone Like what's going on They're not here I can't talk to them Something bad has happened when in actual fact As I said to you It was a game of golf And you don't have your phone On the golf course Back then So it's But My my point is Like it's It's not About where they were Or what they were doing It's It's about my thought process And that's something You just You have to You go through And then eventually you get talking to them eventually you they see all the missed calls then your dad starts to freak and wonder what the hell is going on why is he so yeah. worried and then yeah. and then it comes back to them maybe that they start to realize the simplicity of a young person's mind again is just they're really worried because they couldn't get through to you and then that kind of dissipates and that goes as you get a bit older then you know you, you know you just continue your your relationship continues to develop you you continue to know that they're here for you they're healthy they're not going anywhere and then you also begin to as like as you go through your teenage years and when you're in a boarding school you know you start to develop some sense of independence for yourself because even even though you're woken up at a certain time and like life is is quite regimented because there are times to be everywhere in the day in the life of a student in boarding school Nonetheless, you start to develop a sense of independence about being away from home and about getting up on your own two feet and about looking after yourself and you know not not being able to just get back home in the evening and confide in in you know or or kind of hide yourself away because those options don't really exist in a boarding school you're you're among people nearly all the time yeah. so you just you, you know you begin to develop that bit of independence you, like any youngster then as you interact more with you know, older students, you know, guys that are heading 16, 17, 18, you know, you begin and, to just... And that,
0: and that was done through, and correct me if I'm wrong, that was done through sport for you, Seamus, yeah. Did yeah. You, did, you, did you immerse yourself in sport to, I suppose, try and put to one side what had happened, or was no. it always just because you were a sporty kid?
1: Yeah, no, I'd never had anything to do with. Certainly, by no means consciously did I ever think this is my refuge.
0: Because you know what they say, obviously, like physical activity allows you to yeah. get out of your head and into your body.
1: Yeah, no, like I never had this, um, like I was reading an interview with, or I was reading an interview there a couple of weeks ago, um, the singer in Dublin, Anya Cahill, mm-hmm. and she was talking about kind of her approach to managing her mental health, and she was saying that music offered her a way in which to express her thoughts and her feelings on words, on paper, in words, on paper, and then to sing them. And it's it's kind of... A, it, you know, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of cathartic for her. Yeah. You know, that's what she was saying. I never consciously felt... When I put on a helmet or when I crossed the white lines to play rugby in Ross Cray, I was like, right, all this stuff I'm thinking about is gone now. You know, I've, I have an hour here where right. I'm playing the game. And, no, it was never... That, that,
0: that's massive insight for me alone yeah. because that's what I always
1: would have thought. Yeah, no, no. It never, never occurred to me whatsoever. I mean, I was like my earliest memory in the pub where we were from at home is to practice starting at one end of the pub sprinting down as fast as I could run with a hurley a ball and a hurley around the pool table and back up and if I didn't drop the ball and get 20 pence from lads in the bar <laughs> all right yeah and that was my first waking memory of being in the pub and then lads started to realize this guy will keep doing this until he until he gets it and then when he gets it he's going to keep doing it to get better at it and we're going to continue to give away 20 pence so that was stopping pretty quick <laughs> but like I was like sport was what, you know sport was my outlet as a youngster it was what I did it's what I played it was my kind of hobby and it was primarily hurling or Gaelic football when I went to Ross Grey you know I had never picked up a rugby ball before but when I went to Ross Grey there was two things that that popped into my head immediately One was that most of the guys in my year were playing Therefore I wanted to make some friends And I played And two You got off early on a Wednesday from school (laughs) Yes So even though it was a half day You got off earlier again So it was like grand I'll definitely take that And That's why I started to play And then I suppose I just I found You know I, I enjoyed it I was able to play I was getting picked to play on school representative teams So I just stayed playing but, 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 but you're, you're downplaying it again there It was one of the, the
0: lads Who said to me At one point in time They counted up You were on 20 teams In total nearly And, that, and, and people listen to this and be like, Will you fucking go away like, like there was a stage Seamus at the age of 14, 15 You were on The junior hurling team The junior cup team You were on the sixteens team You were on the 70s team You were on the senior team In the hurling You were on the county teams You were on the club teams yeah. The lads counted up That you were on around 20 teams at the time yeah. I, I I mean I know you were kind of looking to be like well I suppose that's the way it was that's yeah. the way that's the way it was fair enough, but like I mean mind-blowing and not just that you were actually winning the games for these for these for these teams as well, and that kind of went on for, for, for the whole extent of your existence not just within Ross Gray but then obviously through your hurling years with with Tipperary as well was it a, as a case that the body just gave up then.
1: No well, I think I'm still going. i <laughs> bit of training done this week, a couple of miles to <laughs> run yet this week. So I'm not fully uh, I'm not fully retired yet. But yeah, I had a I had a busy couple of years, yeah. A lot of um a lot of teams going at one point, kinda of two thousand and two thousand 2005, thousand and six. Yeah, I'd have been yeah, like you said there, they've been playing on lots nearly, uh, pretty much any hurling team the school would put out and then one or two of the rugby sides and then at home with the club quite a lot of teams and with Tipperary a couple of teams that I was eligible for and I suppose yeah like I mean would have done enough you would have been covering or putting the body through plenty in terms of um, games and that I I did my bit yeah Um, and did the body give up on me a bit yeah I mean I like I picked up a cartilage problem in my knee that I thought would fix itself in three three and a half weeks and three and three and a half years later I was still I was still... I only got back from it... About three... Nearly three years later... So three weeks to three years... I mean what the hell... And you have three or four surgeries to do... And I mean it was a cartilage problem... It was a degenerative wear and tear issue... So I mean... The wear and tear comes from... Exactly that... Wear and tear... Using your body... Mm -hmm. Um, So I mean there probably is a correlation there... Between the amount of... uh, Teams and games you play... And what's going on... But at the same time... Like... When you're that age, like again, like I was kind of saying, when you're a bit younger, 11 or 12, you're not engaging in a whole pile of self-reflection about what's going on. When you're 15, 16, 17, and you're on teams that are doing okay, your natural instinct is, right, what's next? Like it's not not to spend a lot of time in the rearview mirror. It's, right, what's coming up? Right, won that game or lost that game or didn't play well today or played well today. And the opportunity was always, what's next? like the opportunity is always in the foreground so I always thought I just used to go to the next one and I never I mean I never really stopped much to consider it and you just like you just truck along you just keep going and you play with the different teams and it goes from like you said school and a couple of sports in school or a couple of codes I should say and then you're combining that with your teams at home. You're combining it with a bit of county. But, but ju- just within that, and not to cut across you, Seamus, there was something about your, your
0: style of play that was similar in the hurling and in the in the rugby in particular was that lads used to say you used to play with a bit of a chip on your shoulder. That there was a kind of a, a bite to you, that you were out to sort of prove someone. You were out to kind of do someone proud. Was there always a case before any match that you'd have a little reflection and think of your dad and think of your mom in particular, uh, and say, "This is going to be my day. This is what I'm going to do."
1: Um, not with man, no. Never. Okay. Never, no. No, I never thought. You know, I never thought a performance on the field now can do her justice or can, can give some respite. Never, and with dad. Dad would dad. My dad would go to a lot of the games I played. You know, he's a big hurling man himself, and he got into the rugby. By way of me Being interested in it You know So he And he enjoyed the, He enjoyed The honesty That there is to rugby yeah. You know And he enjoyed The conduct And the nature Of the players the You respect. know You refer You re, you refer to the referee As sir You shake <laughs> hands With players you, you know There's no Trying to get a guy off There's no big garden There's a lot of just straight up honesty about rugby And he enjoyed he enjoyed that um, He enjoyed that aspect So he came along to watch the games But with Dad and I in terms of Doing him justice, no It was never doing him justice But it was always to It would definitely have been in my mind He would know what He would know what OK was In terms of my performances And it never had anything to do with scoring or with scoring a lot or with that that never came into what we talked about as reflecting on, on my sport or how I played it always was whether the performance met the requirements that we would have had in terms of working hard for the team in terms of um, supporting players and oftentimes I, I fell up short you know lots of times I fell short and what he would have said no that that doesn't meet where you need to be um, And, you know, we would have have had loads and loads of difficult conversations when I was 15, 16, 17, where he'd be explaining to me, this is the standard you need to reach. You can. Some days you are there. Other days you're not there. You you have the potential to get to it, but you have to do more and you need to do more. And you've got to you've got to work harder at lots of aspects of your game. So that put pressure on you. Uh, no it never put it never put pressure on me to say geez, right in the middle of a match i need to do this I, I often felt under pressure not to not to let down what, what we were trying to achieve okay. and there's a subtle difference between letting him down and letting down what it was we were working towards so like he would have he would he and i would both know after a game whether i'd stacked up against what we thought was what we thought was um, was acceptable and I'd be disappointed if I didn't reach that um, and I still am I'd be very disappointed if I don't reach the standards we try to get to as I kind of progressed through um, my time in Tipperary and my time in playing in college in Galway and then the few years out injured I suppose a real step change occurred then because you know when you're going from game to game session to session, tournament to tournament and you're winning quite a number of them everything's okay because I mean if you're winning you're part of a team that wins it must be a good team and you must be doing enough to be on the team so you know you're doing okay but then when the surgeries come around when you're starting to spend lots of time in in with surgeons when you're on crutches when you're doing rehab when you've lots of diaphene, when you're never getting near the pitch when you're never putting your boots your helmet on and you're doing most of your works in the gym I suppose a change occurred then Where I was like God You know What's what's going to be the outcome here Like what uh, You know Are we going to get back out in the field um, did, did that
0: Did that Cause a certain level of Of bitterness Bitterness possibly Not just What had happened At an early age Seamus But All of a sudden your, your Your other true love Your sport Was then taken away from you
1: Um
0: At a physical level
1: No I I don't know. Bitterness is the wrong word because bitterness implies... Resentment, even. No, bitterness to me implies somebody took something from you that you deserved or was justifiably yours. Yeah. Like, my behaviour or my meeting the standards as set out by any management team never dropped. You know, I was never taken off a team or dropped from a squad or a panel because, listen, we can't have you around here anymore. So... With that being the case I was like Okay I could I could reason that There were lots of times When I was incredibly pissed off About this injury I was like Why me Like what have I done To deserve this I've always tried to do my best I've always You know Given what I can to teams And very rarely ever Stood and said No I want No Like you know Rejected something So there were lots of times Early on when That would be the case But I mean I was also Incredibly fortunate I mean I got I got a wicked good run at it. Like, in terms of... Like, there are loads of players who have given three times the service to their county teams that I have given and have never seen can like the inside you, can of can you, give me, can
0: you give me your outright, out, outright uh, highlight? Was it that point?
1: My outright highlight of playing for Tipperary? and general, and sport in general. It can be anything at all. Yeah, my absolute highlight actually was this year, 2018. My club team, Killeron McDonough's, we won... Um, we won our division, the North Tipperary Championship, the Senior Championship for the first time since nineteen ninety. So it's like twenty eight years, a long time in our club. But I've been playing since I five. So that's to this year is my fourteenth year. I only turned twenty nine in October. So I was a long time trying to win one, and um, so that's been yeah. Fantastic. Like from a sporting perspective, that's absolutely the highlight. Yeah. So run for Josie. Um, initially that was your first so to to mark mam's 18th anniversary i was going to do 18 maritons seven continents and i was going to try to raise a million euro and when did you think jesus christ what am i thinking i didn't i was certain i was going to do it it was when i got home from traveling backpacking yeah, right? your, your fellow yeah dad said hey whoa, whoa, whoa. What's this now? <laughs> what are you doing here come on man and uh Nah, sure. He just he just wise me up. I mean, you're away traveling, you're backpacking, you're meeting all these eclectic folk in hostels all around the world. Your, your reality, your reality distortion has just went crazy. So bad. yeah. So and, now and, and, I came and home and he put a bullet through that pretty. Quickly. So so the bullet Thankfully. the bullet through that was to decide to go to the South Pole
0: and run a marathon. Yeah, that sounds like a a, a good alternative.
1: Well, no, it's very important actually because at the very end of that line drawn through it. He said look the important thing though Is to hold true to what you consider To be most difficult and do that Mm. So to me that there were two options for that One was either the Death Valley Marathon in, In February in the States Which is close enough to 40 degrees Celsius Or Antarctica in December Which is the other way Minus 25 odd And purely the decision Just came down to the time of the year That's all it was It just came down to the fact that the chances of being involved hurling in december were far lower than the chances of i was certain to be playing hurling in february back at the start of the season and preparing for the season ahead i wasn't certain i'd be hurling in december we'd have to have had a very very successful year for that to be the case and then i said if i'm still hurling in december we'll have had an incredibly successful year i'll just do the anyway, i'll be grand to be it'll be fine that one came. It's the Seven Continent then as well. It's you know very few people even dream of going there. Kind of not to mind run the marathon there, mm-hmm. and there was a race. It's organised by an Irish guy. Yeah, and you talk to us a little bit about the uh, the Antarctic. Yeah. Run. So yeah, it's the Antarctic Ice Marathon. It's on thirteenth to December, um, in a place called Union Glacier in Antarctica. So I don't know what Union Glacier is. I mean. A, a, Know what kind of a town, hut, campsite, whatever, I don't know. We'll find out. I'll tell you in a few weeks' time if you want. Um yeah, so it's on, as I said, 13th of December, 26.2 mile marathon, regular marathon distance, uh 21.1 kilometer track that you're on twice. and um, 50 to 60 odd competitors. I'm the only Irish competitor this year by coincidence. Um, flying out the eighth of December, you fly Dublin, London, London, Santiago. In Santiago, then the capital of Chile, you fly down to a town in southwest Chile called Puerto Arenas, which is just on the verge of entering Patagonia. Jesus, the journey itself. Yeah, it's a long, it's a long haul now. Yeah, so it's um, uh, Santiago is fourteen hours, 14.35, 14 hours thirty-five minutes mm. from London. Uh, and then just the way the flights run I'm actually staying in Santiago for the day and there's a three hour connecting flight following Monday morning, Monday the 10th to Puente Arenas from where there's uh, two race briefings then one on Monday night one on Tuesday the 11th and then on Wednesday either later that day or else Wednesday the 12th to fly into Antarctica which I think is a four hour flight itself so it's, it's a long spin to get from Get from Windy Arbour to, to uh, Union Glacier. Have you, have you ran a marathon before? No. A-
0: and do you like running? No, don't like it so at all. So we, we spoke at the very, very start. You, if you're going to be, as you said, taking people's money, you want to do it and you want to hurt a little bit. A lot, yeah. Suffer yeah, is the yeah. word you used.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's why I stand over, yeah. Suffer. That's
0: Mother Teresa-esque. She, she believed an awful lot in the suffering. It was, 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 it was necessary for, for, for survival and truth have you
1: looked uh, into any of her belief processes no I'm not going to go there I've got That's a couple that's, of weeks to go no, so that's, I, have, that's, I have a that's, that's fair enough be, but what, yeah. I want, what I do want yeah, to hear yeah. is
0: yeah. I know that Damien Brown was a massive um, I wouldn't say idol maybe for you but is, is there any other people or even him himself that you've been kind of studying up on and, and, and trying to kind of get into their psychology
1: <laughs> Yeah, I mean I wasn't very familiar with Damien Brown by any means like knowing his name by association as a rugby player but I wasn't familiar with who he was, or with his his penchant for suffering, basically he he seems to love it. Um, but no, I, I heard an interview he did after he completed the the role, like, and he was you know he was all over the media for a while talking about that because it was a phenomenal challenge he took on. And um, so that was just to brief the the listeners. That was a row across the
0: Atlantic. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's the Talisker Talisker mm-hmm. series row. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a solo row. It's supposed to be the most difficult role in the world you can do. And I remember listening to an interview on one of the, either a podcast or one of the mainstream radio stations where they asked him exactly that. They were like, look, what what got you through this? And he was talking and the, kind of the two principal ones that I use from a mental perspective is do a lot of work on my visualization mm-hmm. and then I do a lot of work with affirmations. So like from the visualization perspective, like every week, every Thursday for the last good while... I've put up a picture on an Instagram story on the running for Josie page of seven weeks, six weeks, five weeks. And it's the picture of like that. It's a picture from the from the race website of, you know, a couple of people in a couple of people in shot running and then this huge white expanse behind it. And, you know, I've just been visualizing various aspects of that, like the start of the run, the first couple of kilometers where I know my left foot and my, the back of my left foot is going to be killing me. Um, Because it just seems to always be the case Every time I go for a training run For the first few K My left foot is in agony And then it eases out and I'm fine So I've been visualising kind of that feeling When I'm there Visualising wearing the gear Visualising doing the first 8K And arriving to whatever this medical tent is Because there's a a a tent or a supply Like drinks and medics Each 8K So getting to that tent Hopefully keeping going to the second and getting to 16k and maybe stopping and just like not, not real seriously but just the different stages just visualising these different things trying to visualise the pain I'm going to be in trying to visualise when I start to tell myself you need to stop here you can't keep going you're not able for this you know just trying to visualise the range of images and thoughts and it's weird like you say visualising your thoughts but trying to just see pictures of what I think will unfold when I get there and then um, the affirmations are, are, just, are just that. They're words. They're just short few words that I say. Um, what are they? Uh, so what I say is I will suffer, I will continue, and I will succeed. So when I go out running, like like say last night I did 14 kilometers. On Sunday I have 27, 28k training run to do. At some point over that run... I'll just scream out loud I will suffer I will continue And I will succeed Three times And then I just keep running And I find I just find that Though I can't remember What Damien Brown's ones He used were But he had something I think he would something Around being unbreakable All they do is Just to briefly explain him All they do is They acknowledge That it's going to be tough They you know they acknowledge That that suffering Is going to be a part of it They acknowledge That stubbornness The belligerence To stay going to continue and then ultimately like the final part is to succeed and in this instance to succeed just means finishing the race and um, it and that's and that's what it is it's just I suppose acknowledging the three stages and they work for me like and like you couldn't pick them up now and decide they're mine now you're going to use them they might work like they might you might coincidentally you might find yeah they work for me but they have to very much be yours and yeah. be what what works for you. Like it wouldn't work for me to say I'm unbreakable. I just it's not. It's not I, w- I wouldn't you. feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah. I we- wouldn't, and I, it, I wouldn't believe it. Um, you've got to believe what you're saying. What you're saying. You've got to believe. Like if you look in the mirror, if you if you decide to use affirmations first thing in the morning, you know you've got to believe looking in the mirror. What you say to yourself, and like I believe one hundred percent that I'll suffer that I'll continue and I'll succeed and, and uh, for that reason th- those th- those three phrases work so it's the mental work is all visualization and affirmation
0: what's going to happen Seamus when you hit that wall or if you hit the wall maybe you won't even hit it but what's going to yeah, happen when will, yeah. when when it happens I mean it's, obviously you have to prepare yourself for it <laughs> yeah and there's nothing that's going to properly prepare yourself for not just hitting a wall but in minus, ha, minus, minus
1: 30, did you say minus 30 Give or take, yeah, I think like minus 25, 26. Um, what am I going to do? I don't know. I, I really don't, like I don't have a, like as I said, I have those affirmations. I'll try and repeat them out loud, scream them out loud in the hope that they'll kind of just, they'll pull me on a bit. Um, what I know I will do for sure is, again, this sounds so basic, but one foot one foot in front of the other just keep moving forward whether i can jog whether i can run a bit quicker because you just want to like break through that hardship or whether it's walking just one foot in front of the other stay going stay going and if it happens to be then you come to like the tent or whatever stop take a break for a minute maybe get a warm drink and go again but if i'm out like you know in the midst of whatever it'll just be just stick one, stick just the next foot. Just put the foot in front and go. So, so
0: that's been tried and tested. And my last guest on the podcast was Brian Keane who did the marathon yeah. de Sable, yeah. two hundred fifty kilometers through the desert. He finished it, and he had only done one marathon before that in Dubai. And he he that was what he he said yeah. the exact same thing. So. You're, yeah, you're, I mean
1: it's just It's just practical Like, like I It's mean, just There's yeah.
0: There's, 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 there's absolute fantastic. Like the essence is simplicity In everything in life yeah, So yeah. I think it's very Very important To to, to recognise that
1: Yeah
0: James, can you give me Some of the highlights Of the Run for Josie campaign So, mo- uh, so far for you Jeez. I mean there's been An absolute outpour Of uh, emotion And generosity From people Can you give me
1: Some of your own highlights Yeah um, I suppose the first thing I'd admit to and I have absolutely no issue with admitting to it. It's it's completely it's completely the case is that I have absolutely no real idea what's going on. You know, like I'm you know, I'm obviously the the guy who came up with the campaign. I set the target of trying to raise two hundred thousand euro for the two charities, Pieta House and Living Links Tipperary. Um but how it's developed, how it's spawned, how it's grown. <laughs> I just I I'm not comprehending it at all at the minute because I'm you know I'm just living I'm living in it like in terms of, it's either supporting the next fundraiser or, or it's training or it's, you know whatever few things have to be managed so. Like I've just you know I I haven't yet even kind of grasped what the hell has went on and and the real generosity of people and the the collective. Of it all, like there's been so many individual fundraising events that have been absolutely wonderful, but it's to tie it all together and appreciate the collective goodwill, the collective spirit, the collective generosity. I just haven't tied any of that together yet. But I remember one of them. You know, one of the real highlights for me. I was um I was, it was a Wednesday evening. I was coming. I was going down home to play a play a game with our club, and I went into the pitch we were playing in. And this, you know, there was an elderly man in there in the field. And he says to me, he said, Look, he said, Come here, I need to talk to you for a minute. And kinda of like men in their seventies or eighties nowadays do to young lads, they kinda of grab you by the arm and pull you in near them. Yeah. And he just said to me, He says, Just keep going with what you're doing. And he handed me an envelope and it had fifty euro in it. And I remember just for whatever reason that was just so powerful to me, you know, for a fella who was kind of fifty odd years older than me and I don't know why, it just was incredibly powerful that one particular moment with that man. But ah there's been It's impossible to Yeah, there's been so so many because like if you take it, you know, there was ten or eleven people, eleven ran the Dublin Marathon. they raised over nineteen thousand euro. Nine of them was the first time ever running a marathon. There was a man summit at Mont Blanc as well. Was yeah, Johnny Verling? Verling, yeah, and um, Yule Oliver, his colleague in work. But um, yeah, John, John did my, and like that was completely out of blue to me. Contacted me, said, look, myself and Yule we're going, we're going climbing Mont Blanc in the 24th to 26th of September. We'd love to do something. We'd love to do a bit for charity and um, we'd love, we'd be honoured to be able to do it on your behalf completely I was fully unaware of that ever taking place you well, know well, listen if you're listening to this podcast and
0: if you're if you if, if you don't care about me and you, please do care about this campaign uh, folks because <laughs> you've heard so I hope you've heard the story so far what are we at, at the moment we're 100 we're 100, 160 yeah, just we're 158, just break, 158 yeah, 158 thousand so we're, we're trying to get over that 40k threshold and anything helps like, you, like it's anything at all isn't yeah, it
1: yeah I mean I, I the, the best way I can explain it and if I had my laptop with me I'd show it to you I have a spreadsheet that contains every single donor Um, and there are, and I know this sounds so so mundane to talk about spreadsheets but it has four columns on it and the first column is the name of the person The second column is the amount that they donated. The third column is how it was donated. And the fourth column is how they were thanked. Not were they thanked, it's how they were thanked. Every one of them, bar two, have been thanked so far because two, I'm waiting on a phone number to phone the person to say thank you. But everyone, whether it's back on GoFundMe, whether it's a mail on Instagram, whether it's in person, whether it's a phone call, a text message, whatever it might be, every single donor on that page has, and some some has been letters written to say thanks but every single donor has been thanked because to me it's not about like you could have somebody and they could they could have decided listen I'll write you a check for 200,000 euro to support 200 people get the help they need or pay the house and they may it might it mightn't have even registered in their bank account that they've just signed a check for 200,000 euro it mightn't have even registered one iota Whereas somebody could have donated €5 euro to you. And that €5 euro might have been their decision that they had put that away as part of their weekly wages to yeah. donate to charity A, B or C. And they picked Running for Josie because they felt some kind of connection to it. So to me, every single donor is treated exactly the same. I try as often as I can for everyone who follows the page to see and to make to make reference to all the people who have fundraised, who have donated who've raised money, who've went out of their way to do something huge themselves because for an awful lot of people and I think I referenced this in the last post on the page like I was just talking about how for so many people they've gained an awful lot of self-confidence, they've gained some self-belief or maybe they've gained it back, maybe it's something that they lost for a period of time, and they've gained it back by the virtue of having fundraised or having completed a physical challenge, like you were saying earlier, you know your physical health and and that the benefits that has for your your whole. And you know, lots of people have said to me, you know, I've I've loved being a part of it because I'd never have done X, Y, or Z without without the push from this, and and like that's a, that's a. a a lovely byproduct that i never really planned to happen because i again i have no issue with admitting um the fact that in january i went to eight companies to seek sponsorship i my approach it started year to this was was like very very ordinary it was this is a pretty different unique physical challenge it's on in a weird place not many people go there you know i have a true genuine connection to the charities and to the area in which I'm fundraising I have some bit of a profile from my time largely playing sports and then over the last couple of years from speaking in schools etc I think they'll donate I think they'll sponsor it I went to eight companies all eight said no in January failed on every single pitch so very quickly I had to turn around and go that's not working something needs to change here and what's become has been eye-opening to me like 74 75 fundraising events across the course of the year thousands of people at this point donating um like what you know i mean i i can't i can't put justice to that i'm very fortunate in one way that i'm able to people want to support I mean it goes without saying and this is completely against the sales pitch it goes without saying that I wish running for Josie never existed of course I wish it never existed I wish I never spoke in any of the 16 or 17 places I have done this year and the dozens in the the years previous I wish I never did any of that but the hand I was dealt is the hand I was dealt and as a result you think to yourself I'm going to use that somehow to benefit one other person and the focus always has been to only ever try to help one person, to help one family avoid the devastation that befell my family. Now what's, what has come about in Running for Josie that people are hopefully, and I really mean hopefully not aware of, is that with Pieta House, for every person who requires the help or the expertise of Pieta House and goes through the doors for the first time, until the last time they walk out of there whether that's 100 visits or one visit that costs on average 1000 euros so what we're hoping to do with running for Josie is to raise enough funds for 200 people or so to go through the doors and get the help and the expertise and the support that Pieta can provide them and try and knock on that effect of that person, man, woman, child, boy, girl getting the support which their family doesn't go through something so for all of the different fundraisers that have taken place there's been a ferociously strong attachment from all these guys to saying I want to try raise a thousand euros because that one thousand euros is somebody and like I always say to all the people I'm like I hope you never find out who the someone is do you know I hope yeah. it's never someone close to you that you love or you care about that needs the help and the support of Pieta house or of living Tipperary, but unfortunately an awful lot of people need their help need their support and it's just a reality today in Ireland that the amount of people who need it is getting younger and younger all the time Seamus
0: Sh- you, you've said it all normally what I ask and my guests at the very end of, of the show is is to say their favourite quote but I'm actually going to say a quote that that, that I uh, read you did with the, I think it was the, the, the Independent or The Times you said that vi- being vul- vulnerable is not a weakness it's an actual strength and I found there's just so much you can even speak of you could do a nearly a full podcast on that. I've actually done nearly a full podcast on that in itself I think it just speaks volumes of yourself and, and the journey that you've been through to date um so that's all that's left to say really at this stage is thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me and, 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 and everyone else who's listening today. Thank you very much for everything that you've done so far um, for a suicide prevention and everything else. So
1: Not at all. Thanks for having me. I appreciate um, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and I hope people can get something from, from what I said. Um, I also hope people would go back and listen to, I think it's a couple of podcasts ago, the one where you... You opened up the can of bit yourself, um, and you know started to share kind of what's, what maybe you're thinking when you look in the mirror. I think it'd be very valuable for people to, to go back and listen to that because that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, much like what I've done over the last time on, on this, which is not the easiest thing in the world to do, but you do it because of a belief that it might help someone. So, um, it'd be strongly encourage people to go back and and try and take in some of that podcast because there's there's a lot of power and a lot of strength and wisdom in it. So. Um but thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it and uh I was delighted to be able to do it.
0: Folks, to to follow Seamus' journey, all you need to do is just get the on Instagram it's it's um run for Josie. Uh we're also on you're also on Facebook. Where else What uh, what other platforms can we get you on as well? Uh,
1: yeah, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, running for Josie, um yeah they're they're kind of the three don't they? and then like there's if people are interested in donating there's a gofundme page again running for josie and that's actually worth even just even if you're not interested in donating which is absolutely fine it's work going on just to see all the other fundraisers because um, they all nearly contain the name and you can just see what what lots of people have been doing because i think it um i think it's quite empowering
0: Let's get Seamus over the the 40k mark guys Thank you so much for listening today Seamus thank you again to yourself Uh, We'll see you again, this was the Dogcast. thank you